I think a materialist approach to things is very, very consistent with uh, my experience in Christian social justice. I feel like the, the deeper I get into anarchist practice, the deeper my faith is getting at the same time. I would hope that you know, securing means of life for all would be something all people of faith would say, oh yes, that's at the basis of what we believe. Those who are most marginalized know the most about the truth, good and the beautiful. To me, it's less that I think building class solidarity is a bad thing, as much as it seems like if you don't attend to things like anti-black racism, um, that's always going to get in the way of building class solidarity, actually. And when you go back, you find that a lot of uh, revolutionary grassroots participatory movements, the, the precursors to what you could call um, the barrio assemblies and these like, you know, grassroots neighborhood organizations, a lot of these were sponsored by the church. What does it mean to say that the Christian tradition is internally contradictory and there are antagonisms there? Um, you're always uh, being faithful to some aspects and betraying other aspects. Welcome to the Magnificast, a podcast about Christianity and leftist politics. I'm your co-host Matt Bernico, and I'm your other co-host Dean Detloff. Dang, it's it's been a minute since we've just been doing it by ourselves. It has been a long time. I don't even know if I remember how to do this. <laughs> yeah, I need to put the training wheels back on. Uh, well, at the start of the show here, let me take a moment and say that if you like this podcast, you should support it on Patreon at Patreon.com/slash/TheMagnificast. Um, we'd appreciate it so much. Uh, podcasts, as it turns out, are kind of a lot of work, and when you make one every week, it's sort of a big commitment to put something together, and dang, would we love to be paid a little bit for it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, yeah, so if you want to help support the show, um, we welcome you to do that at patreon.com slash the Magnificast. Uh, if you sign up, um, at, there's all kinds of different levels, and they're all great. Sometimes you get stickers, uh, you can get an invite to the Discord server, you get access to a special behind the paywall podcast that's so good that everyone loves where we answer some silly Reddit questions and talk about uh, current events. And uh, I think at the yeah, you get stickers. I think I said that one already. Listen, it's good. Uh, and if you can't, then that's no big deal. Just give us a nice rating on iTunes. That's all we can really ask from you um, besides money. <laughs> <laughs> it's the money of uh, I don't know. It's some some kind of currency. Someone cares about it. Uh, I do, too. It, it does help our algorithm. And what do they call that in uh, like marketing classes? Social capital. That's what it is. You can help build our, our fake social capital. <laughs> That's right. Well, this week uh, we decided that we would um, hmm, kind of do one of those good current event episodes that we do every now and again and talk about just what's been happening in the discourse. Um, So this week, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, the discourse surrounding the quote unquote labor shortage and um, also the discourse kind of around wages and unemployment, all these big economic terms. Um, If you follow me on Twitter, you know, I care about these things so much that I wrote an article in Sojourners and we'll probably talk about that a little bit, too. Um, But we're going to kind of do a deep dive into more of the like Marxist take on the big economic ideas behind wages in this episode. So. If you read my thing in Sojourners, don't turn this off because we're going to talk about even more things. <laughs> so we're sojourning even further. We're sojourning. We're taking uh, the extra mile. Um, <laughs> G- Jesus told you when the Roman soldier makes you carry his stuff for a mile, you should carry it for a second one. And that's what this podcast is making you do. Stick with us a little bit longer. <laughs> Yikes. <laughs> we're the Roman soldier. <laughs> when you put that it that one. way, it does not sound like a good time. No, no. Bad one. I messed that one up. Okay, so in case you've never heard of this or you have no idea what discourse it is that I'm talking about, 
let me tell you a little bit about it. Over the past few months, there's been a yeah, developing discourse around what some people have called a labor shortage. Uh, basically, the premise of the conversation is that, uh, you know, since some people are getting vaccinated and, you know, COVID is um, a, a still a very big problem, but for, for some a portion of the population is a waning problem um, and things are kind of getting back to the way they were. People can go out to bars and restaurants and you might be going back to your office or whatever. Who knows? But uh, there's one big problem with all of that still. Uh, many workers aren't uh, flocking back to their very low-wage jobs that are in dangerous public-facing environments with no health benefits. I can't imagine why. <laughs> but the uh, the dominant media narrative is doing everything in its power to sort of obfuscate the reason why. Um, it's trying to explain that the so-called labor shortage is uh, is a problem because of federal unemployment money, and it's creating a you know, a tight labor market where people aren't so desperate just to take any old low paying job uh, anymore. It's creating a situation where people are, uh, you know, like a right wing pundit might tell you, um, it's creating a situation where people are happier just sitting at home, not working, collecting unemployment than getting a job. And uh, well, in a lot of these situations, I don't know, you can't really blame people. <laughs> you can't really blame people for not wanting to get paid, uh, you know, eight or nine or ten dollars an hour to uh, get a job where you have to, you know, work with the public so closely, it's uh, not very safe. And uh, listen, $10 an hour is bad. So the media narrative is pretty clearly dog shit. It's bad. It's um, it, not only is it bad, it's just clearly propaganda. You know, the problem isn't um, as uh, some right wing pundits or fast food restaurants would would put it. The problem isn't that no one wants to work because of unemployment. Instead, it's that like, you know, McDonald's, Wendy's or whatever your local restaurant is, who knows? Um, they're not paying enough to attract the labor that they need. That's it. It's not a labor shortage. It's uh, the, the people are there. Clearly, no one's gone anywhere. No one's gone off to war or like whatever. Um, <laughs> it's just that they, uh, you know, no one's offering a very good deal. Like, why would you take uh, why would you take ten dollars an hour when you could make a little bit more um, on unemployment or something? It, it doesn't make any sense. The problem isn't that like workers are lazy or whatever kind of weird uh, spin that bosses want to put on it. The problem is instead that uh, none of these places are willing to pay, you know, what people actually want or need to survive, just basically. Mm -hmm. So in, in light of all of this, we're going to hash out some of this from our particular Marxist Christian perspective, that one that you know and love so much. And uh, we'll also spend some time talking through like the propaganda angle of it all as well. And then uh, we'll give maybe the big definitive take on why Christians specifically should care about things like wages and the rights of working people. Uh, so listen, we're packing a lot in here. It's all good. Uh, Dean, what do you think? I think it's good. It's a good plan and we are going to execute it. Uh, but I think it's good to dive into this media narrative a little bit more before we even get into the Marxism and Christianity stuff. Uh, just because it is pervasive. I mean, I hear it all the time, even talking to people back in the U.S. Uh, there is a, a sense that there is a big wait, uh, labor shortage. People just don't want to go to work. You see it on signs. There's all these photos of like Dairy Queens and McDonald's that have uh, signs that say, you know, jobs for those who want them or whatever it is. I don't know. Is that like a people to judge <laughs> slogan? I don't know. Um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah. um, but I think it's it's important to break it down. You know, it does reveal, I think, a lot of weird things about how conservatives think about labor in general. 
So you mentioned already, Matt, there's enough people willing to work, but they don't want to work the jobs that are being offered to them for all kinds of reasons, right? They're not getting paid enough, they're unsafe, so on and so forth. Um, I think it also exposes other weird ideological things around labor, especially in the United States, right? Like one thing that you often hear about, especially minimum wage workers, is that they're lazy or they, uh, you know, they just take whatever crappy job comes their way and they're not ambitious. They don't have any dreams or goals or desires. And that's just why they're there. And the story that's often told about not raising the minimum wage is also like, uh, it shouldn't incentivize people to work in these, these, you know, stupid jobs or whatever is the way they usually frame it. And instead, they should uh, go, you know, if they really want a, a better situation, they should advocate for themselves and so on. Uh, I think that story about labor is gross for a lot of reasons. Obviously, it ignores all kinds of real life situations. But the ideological piece here that I think I've just been struck by a lot is on the one hand, so many people are quick to say, uh, minimum wage workers, if they really don't like it, they should just go somewhere else where they're truly valued or whatever. But here's a situation where actually a lot of people are doing that and it's really mm -hmm. bothering them, right? Like they're like, why can't you just suck it up and work this crappy job instead of sitting at home uh, and, you know, not getting COVID? So I think uh, that story itself is actually really revealing of a lot of ways that people think about uh, labor, the ways that they devalue, especially low-wage workers and low-wage earners. And uh, it's important to figure out what that's revealing in this particular moment about our political economy. Yeah, you know, that's a really good way to put it, because, like, um, this moment in the discourse, I mean, like, okay, I keep calling it the discourse, because that's what people call it on Twitter or whatever, and it makes me sound like a, a very strange person <laughs> to talk like that. But like um, these types of moments where there's sort of a zeitgeist around a particular topic are really important because they do reveal like a certain type of cultural logic that's at play. And here you can clearly see what it is, right? That um, like fast food work or like low wage work in other industries as well. It is like there's a cultural stigma around it that people think that if you work in those jobs, like you're stupid or um, you deserve it or whatever. And those things are not true, right? Like. People, uh, I mean, no matter what industry you work in, should have dignity on the job. And like people are actively fighting for that. But, um, you know, the, the cultural stigma around these things uh, makes that a very hard thing to get across, especially in this moment. And, you know, that that narrative of like cultural stigma or of lazy workers or whatever is actually I mean, it's so pervasive. Um, you, you were mentioning like the uh, the signs at like Dairy Queen or McDonald's or whatever. Um, you know, they say, like, no one wants to work anymore, right? Which is, like, a uh, a very loaded sentence because, like, it's not true. Mm -hmm. People do. But um, it, it does cast the kind of idea that, like, the workers are the problem. It's always the workers. It's not the business. It's always the workers. It pushes all the blame onto somebody who really has not a whole lot of, like, social power in, in the given moment. Um, there's, uh, in, in all of the discourse too, there is like one quote that always kind of comes back to me, um, in this one business insider article that was, uh, published sort of towards the beginning of this whole conversation about the labor shortage. This, uh, this guy who owns a Duncan franchise, uh, he said that, uh, that this is the pandemic of 2021, the lack of people to work, which like, <laughs> okay, I know, okay, right? Donut like, man. <laughs> exactly. Donut man. He is like, uh, I mean, it's completely <laughs> overly dramatic. For sure. Um, but I mean, like that even takes the whole situation a step further, right? Not only are our workers like lazy or whatever, but they're also their laziness is like a pandemic. It's like that bad. And 
I mean, it's all stupid. It's all awful. Um, it's a horrible way to think. It's a horrible story to kind of tell ourselves about the um, like what other people are worth. I think it's a real um, a, like a sociopathic way to think about other people that they're just like, you know, of course, like um, a lot of people writing these articles have never talked to a real like a real fast food worker before or a real person who makes like an hourly wage. So they wouldn't know. But like sort of casting them as this like whole class of people who are just like one giant blob of uh undifferentiated laziness is not uh not great it's a real dehumanizing way to look at people i hate it but um i mean all that is awful but you can also understand too that like this rhetoric has a real particular purpose um and you know the purpose isn't just to like hate people who work low-wage jobs because it's like fun and i mean like you know i'm sure people are sadistic and awful about it but like the rhetoric about lazy workers, especially in these like low wage sort of situations, are really important to the way that the capitalist economy works in general, right? Um, because without these, uh, without this rhetoric, uh, without the the social pressures that come with them, and without building like, without the social pressures that come with these types of rhetoric, like you wouldn't be able to also build the political will that you would need to uh, do things like cut unemployment benefits <laughs> or keep the minimum wage low or um you know do those types of things so like um for example kind of i mean a few weeks ago i guess it was pretty recent the u.s chamber of commerce which is um it sounds like a like a governmental organization or something but it's not it's basically just a big lobbyist for big corporations they like kind of seized the moment on uh, on the labor shortage discourse, and they said we're going to start lobbying for legislation that would basically end that supplemental federal unemployment benefit, like the COVID benefits that people have been getting, basically to like make people desperate enough to take like a low wage job. So you know these uh, these rhetorical points aren't for no reason. They um, they are kind of spun out, and they create the social pressures that create the political will to like slash unemployment and we've seen this kind of thing happen like it's it's actively happening in all kinds of different states that have cut uh cut unemployment benefits um to try to solve the labor the labor shortage but like it won't work it's really just like a, an anti-worker agenda that is going to uh try to suck up the surplus labor that's uh, kind of just floating around out there yeah i think that's a really good point especially the surplus labor point you know one thing that i've learned from marxism but uh, first communicated through somebody like Boots Riley, actually, uh, who's just a good a good communicator about how labor works, is there's a weird story that gets told about unemployment as well, that uh, people don't like it or they do like it or whatever. But the strange thing about capitalism is that it actually requires a pretty good chunk of unemployment, not too much, of course, because then there's a big economic crisis. But it needs some because you also need to be able to uh, threaten workers with the ability to to fire them. Uh, you don't want a climate where workers can just choose whatever job they want because that actually creates competition among things like raising wages. If workers have the ability to go around and shop around for a job that they appreciate rather than a job that they feel compelled to work because they need to survive, then that puts a really big uh, pressure on rich people to give up at least a little bit more of their profits. And I think it's important too to be like, you know, even things like attacking unemployment, uh, all unemployment benefits, that is, uh, all that stuff is part of a, a big, weird project by the ruling class to uh, uh, continually devalue low wage workers on purpose, right? That uh, mm -hmm. the more you can devalue them rhetorically and materially through wages, 
uh, the more control you have over how much money you rake in. And uh, it's all part of a it's all part of the big <laughs> capitalist conspiracy over here with my big yeah. tinfoil hat. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> yeah, totally. I mean, the big tinfoil hat. It's fine. It's a great hat. I love it. It looks good on you <laughs> and me. But I mean, like, it's it's true, though. Like, you're not you're not wrong. It's not a that's not a QAnon level conspiracy. You know, it actually reminds me um, the uh, the president of the Union Unite Here. Uh, this guy named D. Taylor. He uh, Unite Here, in case you don't know, uh, is a union that mostly represents people in the hospitality industry, kind of writ large. Uh, mm-hmm. They, I don't know, they organize a lot of people. That's fine. It's it's good. It's a good union. No no big deal. Um, anyways, he uh, had this Twitter post a few days ago. It was kind of like a thread. That was just sort of laying out some of the bigger picture things about uh, about workers kind of returning to work post COVID or I mean, we're not post COVID, but you know what I mean? (laughs) As things are getting back to normal or whatever. And he was making this interesting distinction that like, um, you know, uh, a lot of like some hospitality workers, um, you know, they were probably recalled or something or like furloughed or, you know, they were they were not fired. And like now they're they're, going to end up going back to work and like that would be fine. Um, especially if like they have like a union contract that kind of like makes provisions for those kinds of things. Like, um, you know, if they weren't completely terminated from their job, like, um, you know, they'll get back to their job as, as normal and fine. But, uh, workers who are terminated, uh, and replaced rather than just like furloughed or recalled, they, um, will end up making, uh, according to this one union president, 11% less in wages when they do get a new job. Hmm. And I think it's really important because like a mass, um, you know, a mass termination of individuals in low wage jobs, like it gives employers an opportunity to like drive down the wages that had risen in the last year. So like from mm-hmm. 20, I don't know, it, you know, 2018, 2019 into 2020, like wages were like rising sort of steadily, not, uh, you know, not massively or anything like that, but like they were going up. Um, but the mass layoff of a bunch of people means that like that's an opportunity for employers to then uh, drive the cost of wages way down. So it's just like it is a, an, another one of those moments to like, uh, you know, kind of seize the moment of the like, the opportunity to devalue the the, you know, devalue the work that people actually do. And, uh, you know, the uh, CEOs and like bosses will end up making a lot of money in this whole situation at the expense of workers you know the workers will still do the same amount of work and they'll probably have the same amount of productivity if not more or whatever but like uh they won't see the they won't see the gains in their wages they'll uh but the ceos will mm-hmm. yeah and uh i mean it's good that you bring in the unite here president as well because you know so many of these workers that are being chastised are also not unionized right they don't have the ability to collectively advocate by and large um they don't have a, a big national union that is spending a lot of money to advocate for them or striking contracts with them a lot of them are able to be fired at will by their employers and so on and i think that's also a major piece of this too you know, working people who are not unionized, I think, are starting to ask hard questions about what it would mean to unionize. And especially in these kinds of jobs, uh, you know, there's a whole movement to try to uh, build some collective power among traditionally non-unionized industries. And I mean, this is uh, the ruling class would not be wrong to be like, this is a pretty pivotal and crucial moment. You see all over the place uh, businesses patting themselves on the back now for raising the wage uh, themselves voluntarily to $15, right? Amazon has been talking about it. 
Uh, Walmart has been talking about it. Lots of these places that are kind of maybe seeing the writing on the wall and uh, trying to get ahead of the game a little bit, give themselves some moral points. Um, but even that itself is like uh, uh, basically trying to stem the resentment <laughs> that uh, they know is is reasonable and building. And I think it's also important to realize that that resentment is picking up on something true about political economy and about what it means to uh, to be devalued and what it means to be a low wage worker, to sort of intuit something about uh, the fact that wages are not uh you know, they're not like reasonable rewards for doing hard work or hard labor. And, uh, you know, the pandemic, I think, exacerbates all that kind of stuff. The pandemic makes uh, low wage work even harder. Low wage workers have not only had to work in unsafe conditions, but around increasingly erratic customers and weird people who walk into your place without a mask with like something to prove so that they can feel important or, or like they're resisting the government or something. You know, low wage workers are not hired to be security guards or like mask enforcers or anything else like that. Uh, and I think uh, the fact that workers are starting to be like, I don't think I want to be in that space anymore. <laughs> is yeah. something that businesses are uh, starting to be frightened by because they can't just sort of take that for granted now. Yeah, that's true. And I mean, I think, too, that workers are smart, you know, like people work in places and, you know, uh, mm -hmm. in jobs that are low wage or whatever, and around these erratic customers, and they like kind of understand how this all works, right? Like, you know, the $15 an hour from Amazon or from Target or whatever, it is a publicity stunt for sure for, the, mm -hmm. for those companies, right? Like, um, I don't know, like two weeks ago, McDonald's said that they were going to raise their minimum wage to $15 an hour. But like the fine print is like, uh, you know, they're going to do it at their corporate stores only, which, are, which uh, you know, is like 5% of them or something. It's like nothing. It's like barely any McDonald's. It's uh, every time like a company does that, it is it is to show off like how uh, how good and virtuous they are. And uh, it is always like a, the perpetration of a lie for sure. I mean, um, Jacob Morrison makes the point all the time on Value Labor Report uh, about Amazon, too, that like. Uh, you know, the, the jobs that pay $15 an hour at Amazon are jobs that should be making way more like, uh, mm -hmm, you know, mm -hmm. so so it's just like it's always sort of like a, a publicity stunt to make people think that their business is uh, doing something good or, um, you know, is being progressive in some way. But really, it's not. It's just like, you know, to look a certain way. And uh, it's always right. bullshit. Yeah, exactly. Well, I think maybe this is a good time to pivot to finding out what everybody's favorite political economist thinks about wages, Karl Marx, uh, because I think that it's actually really hard to figure out what wages are. It seems kind of obvious, but there are some interesting specific things about wages that are kind of hidden from us as well in our daily experience of being waged workers. Um, I don't know. Is it a good time? Can we move on from the media narrative and, and talk about uh, Marx's uh, true scientific narrative, uh, the immortal <laughs> science about <laughs> about wage labor and capital? Yeah, I think we got to. Yeah. Uh, so for, for people who don't know, Marx wrote a lot of things about wages, of course, but he wrote a nice little pamphlet called Wage, Labor and Capital. And if you ever want just the cliff notes, I guess, of some of the most interesting stuff that comes out in the big book, Capital, Definitely check this out. He wrote it kind of intentionally, I think, as a bit of a, an intro to some of those thoughts. And there's a lot going on in it. Obviously, we can't cover everything, but I really like this passage that I want to read about wages uh, where Marx really puts it uh, puts it really simply. He says, if several workmen were to be asked, how much wages do you get? One would reply, I get two shillings a day and so on. 
According to the different branches of industry in which they're employed, they would mention different sums of money that they receive from their respective employers for the completion of a certain task. For example, for weaving a yard of linen or for setting a page of type. Despite the variety of their statements, they would all agree upon one point, that wages are the amount of money which the capitalist pays for a certain period of work or for a certain amount of work. Guess what, though? It's not true. <laughs> Consequently, it appears that the capitalist buys their labor with money and that for money they sell him their labor. But this is merely an illusion. What they actually sell to the capitalist for money is their labor power. This labor power the capitalist buys for a day, a week, a month, etc. And after he's bought it, he uses it up by letting the worker labor during the stipulated time. Labor power, then, is a commodity. No more, no less so than is the sugar. The first is measured by the clock, the other by the scales. The exchange value of a commodity estimated in money is called its price. Wages, therefore, are only a special name for the price of labor power and are usually called the price of labor. It is the special name for the price of this peculiar commodity which has no other repository than human flesh and blood. What a great Marx passage. Uh, <laughs> Matt, uh, do you want to break it down? Do you want me to try to break it down? How are you feeling about this uh, This great Marx uh, couple of paragraphs? The thing that's most interesting to me about this passage right off the bat is just that um, Marx gives us a sort of vocabulary to actually talk about what's happening when we sell our labor or when we uh, when we take a wage. I mean, like, it's such a kind of strange thing to think about, right? Especially, I mean, if you've ever worked a low-wage job, uh, it's probably a little bit jarring. Like, you clock in, you clock out. And it's such a weird thing because you're paid for your labor time, but not your labor power, right? Like uh, you get paid for being on the clock for five hours or for eight hours. You don't get paid for taking your your lunch break or your other break or whatever. Um, but like it doesn't actually matter how hard you work when you're on the clock. You don't get paid anymore if you work harder. <laughs> I mean, I think the, uh, the, the whole idea of uh, or maybe the whole myth behind um, American sort of capitalist meritocracy is that uh, if you do work harder, eventually you'll be noticed by your boss and you'll get paid more or whatever. But like eh, that's mostly a lie. That's like not going to happen. Or, you know, if it does, it's not going to happen for everybody who works very hard or whatever. So I think it's such an interesting thing to draw out that like, yeah, like what you're doing when you show up for a job is selling your activity. You're like, you know, that thing that makes you you or that skill that you have or whatever. You're selling that to your boss. And um, it is uh, it's so interesting because it's something that is like super intimate about your life. But at the same time, it's something that is can be super abstract and just sort of like a block of uh, a block of time for your boss to buy from you. Um, yeah, I don't know. That's at least what immediately sticks off to me that uh, that Marx gives us actually a really good way of talking about uh, wages uh, in ways that I think uh, are beyond the, you know, the ways that we talk about it culturally. Yeah, I think that's what I find so helpful about it as well. Like, you know, when you get a wage, when you receive a wage, I think I probably if I never read Marx and before I read Marx, I definitely would have thought this way, probably did think this way if I ever <laughs> got around to thinking about it. Um, I would have thought, yeah, uh, when you get a wage, that's just the amount of time that you worked. You're you're getting that time spent uh, and, and that's that. But I think uh, Marx putting it in terms of both labor power, as you put it, but also saying that it's a, a price of a commodity is really helpful uh, that you're actually selling a, a commodity to the capitalist who buys it in the same way that they buy sugar or in the same way that the McDonald's buys a bunch of potatoes. Uh, mm -hmm. Labor power is one more commodity among other commodities. And those commodities all have different relationships to the process of production. 
So if you don't have any potatoes, you can't make any fries. Uh, but if you have all the potatoes and you don't have anybody to make the fries, then you just have a bunch of potatoes. Yeah. And I think uh, that's huge, right? That is a, a commodity that is, on the one hand, paid for like any other commodity, but on the other hand, functions in this particular way. Uh, and wages are, are the capitalist way of sort of paying as cheap a price as they possibly can for the labor piece of that whole puzzle. Yeah. In I think this is why the conversation that we've been having, you know, kind of previously about commodity fetishism ends up being very important too, um, because uh, all of that that human labor power is always covered over in the process of production, right? I mean, you get the McDonald's French fries, and you probably barely think about who made them, or or even like where the potatoes came from, or who cut them, or what cut them, or you know, mm -hmm. any of these questions. Um, and that ends up being really important, especially in the context of like the economic discussion about the labor shortage. It's important because, um, you know, if um, well, I mean, OK, I mean, just think about it this way, like if McDonald's Corporation or whatever, whoever buys and sells the potatoes, if all of a sudden like the potatoes became scarce or something like there's a mm -hmm. bad harvest or some kind of bugs ate them or whatever, McDonald's just would know like, oh, well, we just have to pay more for the potatoes because they're because they're like harder to come by or whatever right like they would just be like yeah of course we'll pay more for these potatoes that's not a problem for us we're not going to call the potatoes lazy or anything but like when it comes to um like the commodity that they need that is wrapped up in humans uh labor power uh then like they have to come up with all these like very tricky ideas uh and ways to make sure that uh you know if there if there is a shortage if that's truly if that's true they have to come up with all these ways to like thwart that you know like if uh, if McDonald's thought about uh, like labor power, like they think about potatoes, another commodity, then they would just pay more for it. But they obviously are doing something different. There's a different type type of, um, I, I mean, a whole different like sort of playbook and strategy of making sure that labor power is covered over and is not thought about in terms of a commodity, um, and uh, you know to to get the lowest price possible for it, and to and to engineer that lower price wherever they can. Yeah, exactly. I mean, there's something so weird about labor power as a commodity because you can't you can't shame a potato into being cheaper, right? Uh, in a way that you can you can create an environment of shame that tries to make the labor commodity cheaper. And the weird thing about capitalism is in the capitalist process, right? The the whole point is to maximize your profits by cutting all your production costs uh, in a variety of ways by finding cheaper sources of labor or other kinds of commodities, right? Cheaper potatoes from a different farm, let's say, by uh, reducing time that's spent in getting all the pieces of the production process together in the same place at the same time, uh, reducing the production time itself. All those kinds of ways are ways that you can... Uh, keep things cheaper. Labor power is such a weird thing because uh, all the same rules apply as any other commodity, right? If you can get cheaper labor somewhere, you should go get it there if you're a good capitalist. Um, if you can get people to work longer or uh, make more stuff in a shorter amount of time, then you should definitely do that as a capitalist. But uh, if you if you're if you find labor hard to come by, uh, you have to create a, a sort of psychological manipulation environment that that tries to drive down the cost of that commodity. And, you know, right wing and uh, lots of liberal politicians are all too happy to uh, participate in legislatively kind of canonizing uh, those psychological narratives as well, which is just uh, an extremely messed up thing. <laughs> I have to say, <laughs> extremely gross to think about. Man, there are so many um, very bad narratives 
not only about fast food workers, but I think all, all, like a lot of low wage workers. I, I, you know, we come up with these stories that we tell about work um, where people who are janitors or or cooks at a restaurant, uh, you know, um, or, or whatever people at a grocery store, like they we come up with these stories about how they don't deserve dignity. They, they don't deserve like a, a good life because of, you know, the job that they work. And it's such a bullshit thing. Um, you know, it, it's wild, too, because we think even that, like, these jobs are horrible or, like, that no one would want these jobs or something. And, like, that's not even true. Mm-hmm. I mean, like, people enjoy that type of work and they should be paid for it. It's just, like, that's it. <laughs> people are working these jobs and they should be paid for it. And, uh, you know, they find meaning in doing that work. And, like, that's cool. Like, you should. I hope everyone's as lucky as that, <laughs> that you find some type of, like, value in what you're doing. Um, and if it is something that's, like, I, I don't know, uh, like you're a fry cook at McDonald's or you're the janitor of a building, like, and you find meaning in it, that's great. And you should be paid a whole lot for it. <laughs> that, that's my, my one big position. I dig it. Uh, I think though, that's also a good way to pull out more of that point you were making earlier, uh, of that distinction between labor power and just sheer time or something like that. Right. Because what the capitalist is buying is your ability to do a lot of work that will put a bunch of value into something that will make the capitalist a lot of money. And the capitalist is going to keep all the profit that they can possibly make. And they return a piece of that profit as a price paid for, for your labor power. Um, But that price is very different than the fruits of the labor power that you, uh, that you did. Right. So like, uh, a person who works at McDonald's a uh, full shift or whatever, they're going to get paid. I don't know. Let's say uh, miraculously somehow Joe Biden makes everything $15, the minimum wage across the board. Let's say miraculously, you know, uh, a person working at McDonald's makes $15 in that hour. The profit they've generated in that hour is definitely more than $15. Right. And everybody knows that <laughs> everyone knows that that's happening. The person working, the boss, the manager, all, all those people know that that's the case. Uh, but it's just socially accepted that at the end of the day, all that labor costs is $15, which again is a unique thing about labor as a commodity, because, uh, you know, when you, uh, when you buy a commodity, like a potato or something, uh, you, you're certainly going to try to maximize the profit you can get out of it, but you're, you don't have to like, um, you know, the price you pay for that is not subject to the same kinds of uh, variables and uh, needs that like a human person is obviously. And that thing that Mark says at the end of that passage I read, I think just really haunts me. He says uh, that the wage is the special name for the price of this peculiar commodity, which has no other repository than human flesh and blood. Right. And that, that piece of it is so important and so unique and people can like their jobs all they want. And I hope that they do a thousand times for sure. But they're entitled to uh, all the fruits of that work, whether they like it or not. That's true. Uh, they are entitled. And when you start laying it out in these uh, kind of economistic and Marxist terms, I think that the whole setup of capitalism becomes bonkers to believe in. I mean, listen, OK, this is one way to break it down um, or maybe like shed some more light on it. Um, so in 2020, here's a wild number. McDonald's made $5 billion in profit. So like that's the, that's the amount of money in profit that they're making, you know, after everything else comes out. And that's, I mean, it's like so much money to think about, right? <laughs> and like, who's seeing that profit? Like the corporate profits, it's, it's not any of the workers, right? They're getting paid, they're getting paid those wages. Like, oh, you know, um, they're getting like the $12 an hour, maybe 15 in some places, but not very many. 
and like the CEO is going to get uh, a huge bonus, right, for making all that money. And then um, also uh, all of the shareholders are going to get a big kick out of that money, too. Of Like, you know, some, some of the shareholders that own a lot of shares in McDonald's will make probably millions or whatever. And, you know, when you think about that, though, why? <laughs> right. The CEO was listen, I'm sure his job is so hard. Um, I imagine it's very tough. Um <laughs> Probably not. I mean, whatever. I'm sure there's some skill in it. Um, I don't want to sell them short, but uh, I'm sure it's not as uh, challenging as like working a huge shift at McDonald's, um, dealing with irate customers who won't put a mask on and then also having to like go home and figure out how you're going to keep your lights on while also buying groceries. I'm sure it's not as stressful as that is. Um, Right. And the shareholders, like what are they doing to create value for the company? Like they are buying shares like that's nothing. That's not creating value. That's that's not doing anything at all. Uh, so when you lay it all out like this, though, and you think about um, labor as a commodity and like what labor gets in return, it is completely nonsensical. It's a it's a completely delusional way to have an economy. It's not uh it just doesn't make any sense. The people who who actually create the labor or the people whose labor that creates, uh, you know, the commodities that are being sold and that create the value um, in, in the product, they don't get any of it. They don't see it. It's like, what what's even happening here? Why why is it like this? This is so crazy. Um, yeah. So anyways, that's what Marx helps you see, I guess, why this is so completely weird. Yeah. Um, I think, too, it's helpful to parse out how that labor power bit, like, uh, not only is it not rewarded appropriately through the price of a wage, but it also does have that unique relationship to the productive process in such a way that it can mess up that process in intentional ways and different sorts of ways. And Matt, I know you've been obviously out there working really hard on all kinds of uh, cool campaigns uh, regarding to regarding like fast food worker strikes. And you wrote about that a little bit. I don't know. Do you want to talk about that in this context, too? Yeah, for sure. I mean, um, potatoes, they show up. <laughs> they come on the big truck and uh, they are made into French fries. They got to be there. But that's the the thing about human labor power uh, as a commodity uh, is a little bit different. It doesn't have to show up. Um, that's the fun thing about it. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe fun's the wrong <laughs> word, but it's uh, it's true. Human labor has the unique ability to not show up on the job to um to withhold its labor, to withhold that power from creating more value for a company. And that's exactly what so many low-wage workers and fast food workers did. Um, I guess it was last week on May 19th. It seems very long time ago now, for whatever reason. <laughs> My brain has been, uh, I don't know, stressed out about it. Yeah, anyways, uh, back on May 19th, that was actually the, the day before McDonald's shareholders met to discuss what's been going on there. We can talk about that later, maybe, I guess. But anyways... Yeah, May 19th, fast food workers in uh, at least 15 different cities. There were, I think, a few more that kind of spontaneously happened. Um, went on strike, and uh, the workers withheld their labor power, that commodity we've been talking about this whole time. Um, man, it really took off on Twitter, and it also took off in real life, too. Uh, maybe you saw Bernie Sanders and the big hashtag McDonald's strike, which is pretty dope. Um, but there are lots of cool events. I was at one, uh, in my city and it was very fun. And, um, yeah, I mean, like strikes are important for a lot of reasons at the events themselves can be really fun. <laughs> and sometimes they're not fun. Sometimes they're boring. Uh, I've been on a, a few other strike lines that have been less exciting, but anyways, the fast food ones are always, uh, are always, uh, something to behold for sure. 
Um, but they're important for like a lot of other reasons than just being fun or being cathartic. Like it does feel very good to yell at uh, the owner of McDonald's. I love that. Um, but it's important because they demonstrate like what happens when a commodity doesn't show up or it demonstrates the special power that human laborers, human workers have like to not, to not do it right. To withhold their labor for even like a day, even for a shift, it makes a huge difference. Um, like I said, at the beginning of like this kind of rambling segment here potatoes have to show up but workers do not have to they have in the united states at least a uh, a legal right to go on strike and uh without retaliation um and when when they do that it makes a pretty big difference right it it sends a clear message to uh corporations to franchise owners to bosses that like um these are people who have a community uh at their back and other workers at their back. And uh, if you mistreat them, or if you don't listen to them, if you don't give in to some of their demands, then uh, they can walk off and cause a huge problem for you. Um, in the case of the May 19th event, like fast food work is extremely precarious. And like the way all that works is kind of tough. So I mean, they went on strike for a day, they withheld their labor for a day. Um, and I mean, cost McDonald's corporations and franchises around the country, I don't know, kind of a lot of money. Most of them kicked off around noon. And uh, not only is that labor not like coming in to make like cheeseburgers or whatever, but also like at least in my city, they like actively blocked the, <laughs> the drive through in the street and like people couldn't go in for a few hours. Um, so I don't know um, that that's the the special and unique sort of situation that human labor power has as a commodity is that it can just not show up. And um, yeah, I, I mean, you cannot you can just do that <laughs> you know it's a it's a simple situation you talk to your coworkers uh you get people on your side you make sure your boss doesn't know you serve them a, a nice strike notice and then you don't show up and then uh and then you get to go back to work and if you get retaliated against well you can find a good lawyer <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean i think that's also why labor is so significant to talk about in an organizing context too because what we're seeing in this media narrative, right, is on the capitalist side, it's a story about how everyone is lazy. And in reality, it's because people realize that they have no uh, human motivation to go back to a shitty job if they don't need to to survive. If they if the choice is literally between, uh, uh, you know, if if your only motivation to go to work is like you don't want to starve to death, that's a pretty bad reason to get paid no money. Um, but I think what's really important about the organizing piece of it is workers, too, have to understand that if they don't show up, uh, they can actually make demands. It's not about like winning arguments. Right. It's not about uh, convincing people in the in the press or convincing the the owner of the Dunkin Donuts that, hey, these people aren't lazy and you should pay them more. It's like at the end of the day, the workers are the people who control what happens in that place, no matter who owns it. And that's the thing that you can't really uh, argue for. You can kind of only demonstrate through something like a strike. You know, you can the capitalist job is basically to get every part that belongs in the process of production in one place. Right. The potatoes, the fry grill, the restaurant, uh, the registers, all that kind of stuff. The capitalist brings all that together. But at the end of the day, if workers don't show up, then nothing happens. No money gets exchanged, no profits get made, uh, nothing at all occurs. 
And it's so important for working people to be able to feel that power, to understand that that is their power if they act collectively, right? If you do it just by yourself, then you're going to get screwed. (laughs) But uh, if a bunch of people walk off together and nothing happens, well, that is a huge argument for, listen, the price of our labor power is actually a lot more than you're willing to pay. And, uh, you know, we're not going to make you any more money unless you uh, raise the price on this, just like you'd raise it on a potato. Yeah, that's right. Like I mentioned a minute ago, workers in these types of low wage jobs, I mean, it's hard to organize them. I mean, well, first of all, during COVID, a lot of them were laid off. They were terminated. They were furloughed, whatever. Um, And uh, now many of them will end up being forced off unemployment and they'll have to, you know, they'll become desperate and they'll have to find one of these jobs and they'll probably have to take one. Um, And. And like, you know, organize will pick back up again and whatever. That's all great. Um, and, you know, we'll build work for power and fantastic. But also um, these are folks that, uh, you know, you as a person who might not work in that industry, might just have a completely tangential job, uh, can advocate for. You can be an advocate for all of these people. Um, and, and not only, in fact, not only should you do that, but in fact, you really ought to. It's probably a moral imperative. Um, on this show, uh, the thing we're always doing is bringing together these like sort of Christian takes with these Marxist takes. And so far, we've talked about a lot about Marxism, but maybe we should talk about Christianity for mm-hmm. a little bit. Um, let me say, like, here's a hot take. Uh, Christians are bad. Um, <laughs> they are not very good. They've done so many bad things throughout history. They're um, oftentimes exploitative. Um, they are sometimes fascist, all kinds of things. But... Um, if you're a Christian, let me give you this opportunity right now. That This is a way that you can advocate for people uh, who the Bible tells you you should care about um, and who you maybe should care about even if it wasn't the Bible. But anyways, a chance. Uh, a, a, this is a spot where Christians um, are at least called to um, advocate for people, to speak on behalf of people and to actually like, really care about people who are um, who are, uh, yeah, I mean, paid badly. And who are abused and who have uh, whose dignity is not delivered on their paycheck. That's for sure. Um, Christians have long been a part of the labor movement. That's something that we've talked about in the past. Um, I don't know. Listen to some of our older episodes about that. <laughs> we've talked about it a handful of times. But, um, you know, uh, Christians should care about things as specific as wages. Uh, you know, this is kind of a weird thing, I guess. I was doing a text bank a few weeks back and... Um, I don't remember what I was texting about, something wage related. And uh, I got this person who started texting me back and they were like, well, um, I'll pray about this. I'll pray about the wages. I'll pray about these workers. I, you know, whatever. I'm not sure about this whole, uh, the person I was talking to was not sure about the whole political motivations of it all, but they were going to pray about it. And that is such a weird thing to me because the Bible literally talks about wages. Like, I don't know, seven or eight times. Um, There's more in the Bible, you know, about wages and there are about many other topics and uh, this person was having a hard time come up with it (laughs) so um maybe we can talk about some of those some of those uh biblical sources to draw from about wages yeah i mean there's a bunch of them uh like you said there's there's a lot of passages in there more about wages than a lot of other things i think the one that we have adopted as our the magnificast life passage i think by now is james 5 uh, I, I don't know, but I'll just read it, I guess. And then we can parse it out how it relates to the Marxist stuff we've been talking about, because I think it surprisingly does. 
so James 5, uh, go ahead and get out your Bible. Um, you can pause this podcast. Make sure you have uh, a translation you can <laughs> compare with yourself. Um, in the NRSV, <laughs> it says, Come now, you rich people, weep and wail for the miseries that are coming to you. Your riches have rotted and your clothes are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have rusted and their rust will be evidence against you and it will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure for the last days. Listen, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, cry out, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in pleasure. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You've condemned and murdered the righteous one who does not resist you. Uh, there's a lot more in the Bible about wages, but I really think this is kind of a crescendoing moment. Um, not only do you get all the great stuff about God's wrath being poured out if you uh, are rich and bad and don't pay your workers, but I think the uh, the fact that the wages of the laborers uh, end up crying out is such a really fascinating line uh, that the the wages themselves <laughs> are crying out to God in this interesting way. And, you know, this is written in a pre-capitalist time. Wages are not always the same in every part of every society or whatever. But I think that in a capitalist society, we all can probably relate to this piece, at least. Uh, it's not just a matter of wage garnishing, for example, or not paying people what you say they're paying them, but it's the wages that you kept back by fraud. And I think under capitalism, all wages are basically wages that are kept back by fraud, right? Like uh, the fraud being that there's no, as we were just saying, no natural or kind of logical reason that the capitalist just gets all the profit that you make with your labor power and then decides what the price of your labor actually should cost. Uh, that is a fraud. Like that is a complete illusion, a total lie. It is not based in justice or reality or true freedom or anything like that. It is an illusion that, you know, the capitalist is just buying a little bit of your time that you agree voluntarily to sell for X amount of dollars. Uh, and I think that James 5 for Christians should be a really good motivation to say we should call the why of capitalist stories about wages and say, look, this is bullshit. <laughs> Nobody needs to uh, to sign up to this fraud. Yeah, I think that's a good way of thinking about it. Um... I said as much in the Sojourner's piece, uh, and I think that what you're saying is exactly right. That, like, I mean, of course, we can count things like wage theft or something as fraud, but also, like, the whole, yeah, the whole situation is fraud. Um, there is exactly no reasons why uh, a CEO should make so much more than the workers. There's no reason that uh, shareholders should just get, like, you know, money for <laughs> not doing anything. There's no reason that people who actually are doing the work and creating the value for a company should get paid something like $10 an hour or $12 an hour. That's all completely, um, it is a fraud, exactly. Um, man, I think that's all true. The one thing that always sticks out to me about this verse is how utterly damning it is. Like, um, I don't know. A lot of people have lots of preconceived notions about the Bible, and uh, sometimes it's just like, you know, in evangelical Christianity, it's like lots of verses that are just supposed to sort of like make you feel good or help you get through a day or something. But this is not one of them. And I love it. Um, the the lines, your gold and silver have rusted and their rust will be evidence against you is like, whoa, mm -hmm. <laughs> some pretty serious stuff. Right. If, if you're a big Scrooge McDuck kind of person, you got that big stack of money um, that is all weighing against you. That's uh, that's something that will testify against like what you've done on Earth. And uh, man, I don't know. So 
uh christianity some days for me is like uh some propositions i'm not really sure about like i don't know when you die i don't know what happens but um <laughs> but i would love i would love to think that uh i'd love to think that uh, when rich people die they're uh, all the money they have stored up is uh, evidence against them <laughs> yeah. uh, it's uh, <laughs> a redeeming thought i guess <laughs> Yeah, I agree. And, you know, I think, too, this is uh, we're obviously connecting this to a Marxist story about wages, but you don't even have to be a Marxist to recognize that we should be opposed to the the kinds of stories that are told about wages and capitalism. You know, I always think in in the Catholic Church and Catholic social teaching, which I certainly have an ambivalent relationship toward, (laughs) to say the least, there is nevertheless a tradition of what's called a just wage. it's established already in the uh, the papal teachings going all the way back to Rerum Novarum, the first uh, big labor encyclical, but it ends up being codified uh, in all kinds of other ways, I think, in, in the Catholic Church in ways that are really fascinating. And the real key is that it's a principle not just to pay a little bit of wage or enough to get by, but it's actually the case that uh, every worker should be able to receive wages sufficient to provide for a family. That's like the the principle behind the Catholic teaching about it, which gets reaffirmed across uh, all kinds of papal teachings. And I think even radicalized by the time you get to somebody like Francis. Um, And, you know, the fact of the matter is, like, you cannot feed a family on $15 (laughs) and $15 an hour. And the Catholic Church doesn't say, you know, uh, just workers who are working in, I don't know, factories should be able to pay for a family. It's every worker, right? Every worker everywhere should be able to get that. It doesn't make a distinction between low wage and high wage work or uh, part time and full time uh, labor in the way that like McDonald's will hire you or Walmart will hire you to work enough hours so that they can pay you just under full time or something, right? Uh, it says everybody's entitled to that kind of wage. And I I just point that out, I guess, to be like, look, you're not going to sell everybody on the Marxist story about how capitalists are paying a price for your labor power. But uh, you don't even need Marxism to get you there, right? Like the Catholic Church itself is telling you these kinds of things. The Christian tradition in general, from James all the way down, I think has a pretty clear idea. And if you ask anybody point blank, you know, could you live off of what people are paid uh, as a minimum wage? They would say no. And if you're a Christian in good conscience, willing to have a good conversation, uh, you know, a real good faith reflection on the justice of that situation, uh, you should say that's bad <laughs> for whatever reason you want to pick. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's so there are different ways to go about it, right? Uh, fine. You're not a Marxist. Well, all right. But <laughs> there are plenty of other reasons to believe this uh, just the same. Well, we're getting to the end here. Uh, Maybe one last note to pull out, Matt, might be uh, I know there's a complicated conversation around raising the minimum wage on the left in general. I think it doesn't need to be that complicated, (laughs) but we can uh, parse it out together. You know, some people say, look, uh, $15 is not enough. A $15 minimum wage is not enough. And uh, I agree. It's not actually enough. It should be a lot more money than that. Um, some people say that raising the minimum wage will not affect the socialist revolution uh, tomorrow. And I agree. It's not going to do that. <laughs> it super will not. It probably yeah. won't. Huh? Um, but Matt, why, despite those two things, should I ever care about raising the minimum wage to $15? Yeah. I mean, I think there's a few reasons for sure. Um, first and foremost, because it will make people's lives marginally better. And that's a win. 
Um, that's a W, and you should take it if it's on the table, of course. Um, even though it's not like what they deserve, if you know, it's not the uh, it's not what maybe they'd actually be owed in in the uh, in the Marxist sense of the of of uh, the exchange of like labor uh, for uh, wages and stuff. It's not what they're owed. It is something that like people desperately need <laughs> right now. It is like a it's like an awful stopgap that is not sufficient, but is something that people actually do need. Um, and if you don't believe me, I don't know. <laughs> you should go talk to some people who live on a very low wage and see what they have to say about it. Like um, like you said, Dean, like raising a family on fifteen dollars an hour would be very hard. Um, you'd probably have to work two jobs. Um, but people are already trying to do that on like $12 an hour and it's like impossible, right? You have to make kind of crazy decisions about, um, uh, paying your rent or paying your lights or paying for food or paying for something else, right? You have to try to make it all work. And it's, uh, I mean, I'm not exaggerating when I say this, like basically an unlivable situation, like it's awful. So, I mean, the first, the first reason why people should care about raising the minimum wage to at least 15 is because like people need that and it is. It is literally on the table. Um, I guess there's that other that angle too to kind of parse out. Um, it is something that uh, Joe Biden at least has said he would do, and whether or not you believe him is is a whole other story, I suppose. But it is um, right now. I mean, part of the political conversation that's happening. There is the Raise the Wage Act that is you know coming through legislation. There are ways to like actually get this kind of thing done. It's like a possibility, a political possibility that exists right now um, when it did not exist, uh, you know, just a few months ago when there's a different president. So it's a possibility that would really help people. It's on the table. Um, that is uh, those are some reasons you should you should do it. I mean, the other the other thing, too, like you're right, it will not bring a socialist revolution tomorrow and like don't have it you know there's no reason to like uh <laughs> there's no reason to think this is like something more radical than it is it's like literally something that would just make people's lives like marginally better and like that's pretty good um but like you also there's also something too where um marta harnaker has this term called the pedagogy of limitations which is like the, the idea is that you know a socialist movement should be very upfront about what is politically feasible in any given moment and like as far as wages go, at least this is like what is politically feasible for the minimum wage. And like, you know, people on Twitter are constantly posting things like, well, you know, if um, if the minimum wage had kept up with productivity since the 1970s or whatever, the minimum wage would be like, I don't know, twenty eight dollars or thirty dollars or whatever it is. I don't know. I've, I haven't done the math. And like that is totally true. But there there's also no political will for that at the moment. There's like no political will for twenty eight dollars or thirty dollars or whatever. And I think that is something that um, I don't know if you're a socialist and you care about workers rights, you should actually really consider like what is their actual political will for what have econ like economists been doing um, the most research on right like um, all these kinds of questions should really factor into um, how to win something strategically and even if it's not exactly everything right it is. Uh, an important step to getting something else. Yeah, I always think too about Rosa Luxemburg's essay, Reform or Revolution, or it's titled something like that. Uh, it's a polemic she has against Bernstein and other people in the communist movement at the time. But the conclusion that she comes to basically is, look, insofar as reforms will absolutely lessen the burden of capitalism on working people, 
it is incumbent on revolutionaries to support those reforms. Like that's not at odds with a revolutionary platform, uh, but they should always support them with a kind of revolutionary horizon saying, you know, this is not the end that we're, we're going to get this reform, but we're doing that in the interest of actually trying to get us somewhere uh, in the future. But that, that eschatological horizon or that future horizon of revolution doesn't mean that, you know, you don't care at all about these kind of short term wins that do make strong material differences in people's lives now. Like we, we're not going to have a revolution tomorrow, uh, but someone could have their wage doubled tomorrow if the minimum wage went up in, I don't know, whatever state where it's like seven bucks or something. Right. And that is like a massive, yeah. massive uh, difference that really would uh, uh, do a lot more than, I don't know, complaining at organizers on Twitter or something. Yeah, I mean, the thing about socialism that I think, you know, okay, like you see the world and how bad it is. You read, you know, a part of Capital or the Communist Manifesto or whatever, and you can see that this whole capital situation is a grift and it's one that does not benefit you. <laughs> right. And um, socialism seems like a really cool and exciting idea. And it's like, yeah, let's like do it. Let's do some revolutionary stuff or whatever. But like, that's not quite the way it, it's like at least working out right at this very moment right there's sort of a long game to uh socialist organizing to um organizing different yeah like you're saying dean like revolutionary horizons and uh, they take time and effort and a lot of building um in spite of i don't know insurmountable odds you know <laughs> against people who have basically all the money in the entire world um, but that's the uh, that's the work of socialists is to do that long work to do the to do the long game and not just try to like I don't know uh, frustratingly force something that's not going to happen without without it. it. Yeah, socialism is part of a long game, and I think as Christians we should also be good at thinking about that. Right, we've been waiting two thousand years to get this whole thing sorted out, and we're probably going to have to wait longer, and uh, that's fine. We have plenty of work to do <laughs> this side of eternity. Uh, I think for now, when it comes to wages, there's such a very clear path in the Bible, at least, to saying, look, when you think about wages, uh, the people that should really be concerned are not the workers, but the people who are doing a bad job at, at paying wages. And in a capitalist society, that point is uh, ramped up a thousandfold. And I don't know, man, uh, being a Christian, being a Marxist, whichever way you want to do it, <laughs> from whatever side or both at once, uh, at the end of the day, I don't think that uh, either the, the Bible or the Marxist tradition want anybody to buy into those really bad uh, Dairy Queen signs. And I think we got to find a way to uh, <laughs> tell those donut guys to shove it. You heard it here, folks. Tell those donut guys to shove it. And uh, thanks for listening to the Magnificast. If you like what you heard, uh, you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash the Magnificast. You can also drive by your nearest Dunkin' Donuts and tell them to shove it. Not the workers, <laughs> just the manager. Uh, maybe not even the manager, maybe the franchise owner. Listen, be careful who you're telling to shove it out there. But when you find them, let them have it. Let them have a, a copy of James 5 in particular. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> like, a, like a weird missionary, <laughs> but instead of the Bible or the Book of Mormon, it's only mm -hmm. James 5. Um, <laughs> all right. If, uh, oh God, where would... Uh, our music is from Mario Armstrong and our outro music is by The Logical Spoon and uh, we'll see you next week. I don't want to get up for church in the morning, church in the morning, souls alive. 
Heaven come to earth and there won't be no church We'll meet down by the riverside There we'll swim with all creation Never get tired, never bored Don't worry, someday there'll be no dam Between us and our Lord Jackson, keep your hoods up Keep your hoods up And you stay up late Jackson, you keep your hoods up, well you keep your hoods up, and you stay up late, oh don't mind, a cold night, but we might mind if you leave too soon, so come on now, it's still early, at least I would